Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Today, I want to begin kind of a mini-series through Matthew chapter 14 over the next, this week and the next couple of weeks. And I want to talk about the fame of Jesus, the fame of Jesus. Last week when we concluded chapter 13, we saw Matthew bring a contrast between a real Christ follower and what that life looks like and those who uh, were offended by the gospel, if you will. And he brings to closure that area. But in a broader sense of his whole gospel, he's at a point now where he is transitioning to the public ministry of Jesus. And he's bringing to the forefront in his writing the ministry to give singular focus on Jesus. And there's a very exclusive way that he does that. We're going to look at that this morning as we consider the fame of Jesus and how it is that we make his name known in the world. Let's go to Matthew chapter 14. I'm going to read the first 12 verses, which will be our text for this morning's sermon. And then we'll continue. Matthew 14 verse 1 reads at that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus and he said to his servants this is John the Baptist he's been raised from the dead that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him for Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias his brother Philip's wife because John had been saying to him it is not lawful for you to have her And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. So that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. As we begin this series on the fame of Jesus today, we're going to look at a life fully given to Jesus, a life fully given. And Matthew is telling us about John the Baptist, how it was he was imprisoned and, and executed for his ministry. But we also learn about some other characters, namely Herod the Tetrarch and, and his wife Herodias. And then we see ultimately how the fame of Jesus spread. Matthew begins with Herod. Verse 1 and 2, Herod hears about the fame of Jesus. What do you think he was hearing here? Well, I can tell you what I believe he was hearing. He was hearing what we're going to look at in the rest of the chapter. He was hearing about how this man collected thousands of people on the hillsides. And at the end of the day, instead of dispersing them, he took a simple basket of fish and bread and fed the whole crowd with pieces left over. 
He's going to tell them about how one day after a really long day of ministering and healing so many people, he went out and, and, and his disciples were in a boat and, and weren't sure where he was, but he came walking on the water to them. And if that wasn't enough, when Peter said, tell me to come to you, he said, come on. And Peter walked on the water, but for a moment, but he did walk on the water. And his fame grew to such a level that people were running after him and even the crippled were crawling to him so that they might touch the hem of his garment. And even in touching the hem of his garment, Jesus, not knowing who it was or what their need was, would be healed and would walk home, not the way they came to him. There's a lot to talk about in there, isn't there? That's what Herod was hearing about. And so when he comes, we see these great tales and we see that Herod didn't take them too kindly. You see, Jesus' public ministry historically is beginning to emerge here. He knows who he is, but the, the crowds don't fully understand who he is yet. And what Matthew is doing is he's transitioning from the ministry of John the Baptist to focus on the ministry of Jesus. And this word is spreading about his teaching and about his mighty works. And when Herod hears of these miracles, he begins to attribute them to John the Baptist. Here's what we're going to learn. Herod couldn't get John the Baptist off of his mind. Guilt wouldn't let him wash his hands clean of his death because of what he had done. You see, when he hears of the miracles of Jesus, he looks around and out of a great insecurity and internal fear that's boiling within him, he tries to reassure his servants around him of, well, this is John the Baptist resurrected and coming back and doing all of these kind of miraculous works. He's creating and conjuring his own theory. But most of all, as the gospel writers record of, John, uh, excuse me, record of Herod, and even as extra-biblical historians from the first century, like Josephus' record of Herod as well, he respected John the Baptist, but he loathed him. He was jealous of him because he had what Herod didn't have, real power, not perceived power. And he feared John the Baptist because he was so loved by the people, Matthew says, that if Herod did something to John the Baptist, he feared the rejection and, and the revolt of the people against him for that. You see, most people see Herod displaying a deep insecurity and guilt over what he had done to John in verses 1 and 2. But the same insecurity caused him to bloat his confidence to his servants that were immediately around him because the one thing that insecurity always wants to do is create a greater facade to hide its own fear that it's masking. And Herod had enough understanding of Jewish teachings to know about the resurrection and so he conjured up a theory of all that was happening with both the knowledge of what he understood from Jewish teaching, but also superstition that he would drip in as well. What I want you to see first and foremost as we look at a couple of different people this morning is simply this. Herod was not a good person. He was not a good person at all. And that's not my commentary on him. That's the way he's perceived in all of the historical writings directly from the first century. But we need to know about him in order to understand the context of our story today. His name was Herod Antipas. He was given his position of rule by his father, Herod the Great. 
And his position was to basically be like a governor over the region of Galilee and Perea. Herod Antipas was immoral and incompetent, but he held a very high and powerful position in the political realm. Starting to sound familiar? Come on, that was the first one. (laughs) Totally missed it. Listen, there, there will be moments of levity this morning. Because the text is weighty. And I'm not trying to reprieve you from it. But I want to help you understand in deepening ways what's really going on here. Herod divorced his wife that he had married from a political alignment with a neighboring nation. And he divorced her because he began to have an affair with Herodias, and as Matthew records, Herodias was his brother's wife. Herodias also divorced her husband so she could marry Herod. And the nature of their marriage was scandalous from beginning to end as the history books record it, both biblically and also, as I said, by non-biblical sources like Josephus. Herod's divorce would prove harmful, not just for he and his family, but ultimately for his country, as later his former father-in-law would declare war on the people, and they would suffer for the nature of his immorality. But one who's ruled by insecurity cares very little for others, and only bolsters how others would perceive him. And that's what's going on in verses 1 and 2 here. He needs to make sure that those that are closest to him still have some facade of who he really is. And really, he's the only one fooled by the facade he's creating. If a movie were made about Herod's life, it'd be called a psychological fizzler. Not thriller, fizzler. Why? Because it would be a melee of mental insanity from beginning to end. It wouldn't even be enjoyable. It would be so ridiculously insane. Herod was a man who needed to look powerful and he needed to portray that he was in control, but he really wasn't. That's what's going on here. I'll give you one indication of that because it tells us that while he's having such a good time at this big feast that he has thrown now and he makes this boisterous oath and boast, the one thing he most didn't want to do in life was required of him by the one person who supposedly was closest to him in wife, in life, his wife. And then Matthew says this, and the king was sorry. You see, that term king there is not actually a title that Herod held. He was not the king. He was appointed by the king. It is a touch of sarcasm with a heavy dose of realism because of what he thought he was, but he really wasn't. As one author states, outer power will always unveil the inner resources or the lack thereof of a man. And that's perfect commentary on Herod Antipas. But you see, understanding his marriage to Herodias is what gives us the context for this passage today. John the Baptist openly and regularly protested their marriage. And that made Herod look bad in the eyes of the people. Why? Because he had broken God's law. He was immoral 
in this marriage and the way that it came about. And friends, there is nothing that triggers one's insecurity more than the threat against the facade behind which they hide their whole life. And this is what got John thrown in prison. It was Herod's attempt to shut him up. If I put him in prison, I'll show him who's in control. But it didn't shut John up. And Herod held animosity towards John the Baptist. But Herodias, she hated him because it was embarrassing for her as well. When we get to verse 2 and the end of verse 2, moving into verse 3, what we really have is a flashback in time. So Matthew takes us from where we are uh, in, in Herod hearing about the fame of Jesus and and saying that it's John the Baptist. And then Matthew takes us back to tell us what really happened to John the Baptist so we can understand what happened to his life. They're at a large feast and rumors of Jesus' fame are mentioned. And Herod shares his theory of fact and conjecture and, and he dismisses the, oh, he can't be that powerful, can't be that impressive. I mean, after all, look at me. But when Salome, his stepdaughter, pleases him and pleases the crowd with, his dan- or with her dancing, he's, he's uh, 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 shall we say, 2.3 sheets into the wind at this point, uh, not fully cognizant of all of his mental uh, capacity and his actions, and he makes an oath that puts the entire kingdom at risk by telling her, I'll give you anything you ask for up to half of my kingdom, and I swear on it. And the whole crowd hears it. He can't look weak by going back on his oath. And Matthew tells us that her mother, who had been looking for an opportunity, knowing how Herod felt about John, but hating John more than worrying about how her husband felt, ordered that he be executed and then proof be delivered just to show the people If anyone was more wicked and worldly wise than Herod at the table, it was Herodias who told her daughter what to wish for. And with that, with his oath and reputation on the line, his fear of John was only less than his fear of his weakness exposed. So he ordered it done. And what a way to climax a party by delivering proof on a platter Herod's bloated pride and oath would quickly turn to life-crippling regret, regrief, and guilt. And so this section of Matthew's gospel ends with John's disciples coming and taking the body, preparing it, and burying him. And with that, Matthew ends the passage abruptly, and he completes the ministry of John the Baptist by honoring him in his death through the persecution of as a model for all disciples. Now, there's an interesting thing that transpires here because what Matthew is doing is not just exposing the horrific immorality and incompetency of Herod. That's the context. But the focus of what really is taking place here is in the first line of the first verse. When Herod heard about the fame of Jesus. When he heard about the fame of Jesus and how had Herod heard about the fame of Jesus but through the life and the ministry and the message of John the Baptist. 
That's the very way that Herod was continually exposed to that. So what Matthew is doing is very important for us. He's connecting the ministry of John the Baptist directly to the ministry of Jesus who will, to, who will come. And he's teaching us about the role and the importance of John the Baptist. You see, John the Baptist holds a very unique role in the redemptive history of God's plan. He was the last of all of the Old Testament prophets. Now think about this for a moment. Since the Old Testament canon ceased with Malachi, there had been more than 400 years of quote-unquote silence from God. God had not spoken actively through a prophet, his means of communicating in that day and time, for over 400 years. And all of a sudden, there is a voice who comes crying from the wilderness, prepare ye the way for the Lord. Hundreds of years before, the prophet Isaiah would foretell of one who would come, and only after hundreds of years of silence would a man so distinctively and characteristically selling his life out to the fame of Jesus appear on the horizon for people to know God was speaking again. This is who we are looking at because in looking at the man and the ministry of John the Baptist, we are looking to the Messiah of God who would come. John the Baptist was the first to recognize Jesus before he was even born as a baby in the womb when Mary came to visit Elizabeth and Jesus crossed the threshold. John leapt in the womb to say, he's here, people, he's here. John's whole life was ordained to introduce the Messiah. He himself and his ministry was the fulfillment of prophecies hundreds of years old. He was a confirmation of what God was doing, not because of who he was, but because of why God had sent him to introduce who would come. You see, without the ministry of John the Baptist, Jesus could not come onto the scene because there would be promises from God unfulfilled. And God doesn't leave promises unfulfilled. Amen? You betcha, amen. Once John confirmed that Jesus was the Messiah, he knew his ministry was complete. Matthew chapter 11 tells us that he's sitting in prison. He's hearing too about this Messiah who was teaching like nobody had ever heard before, who was healing, who was doing all these miraculous signs. And he sent word and said, are you the one? And Jesus responds, you tell him what I've done, you tell him what I've said, and you tell him to compare it against God, what God said about the one who would come and he will know. And John the Baptist knew. And with that, John the Baptist knew his ministry was complete and he gave up his whole life for whom he had lived, Jesus. You see, likely John's death was the public cue for Jesus' public ministry to be introduced as Messiah. Jesus understood the word of God perfectly. He understood the role that John the Baptist was playing. And when he heard that John had been executed, a martyr of the faith, very likely that was his sign from the Father, that now the time for his public ministry to take place had come. This is critically important in redemptive history, friends, and something we should not overlook. But what I want you to see that Matthew is telling us is that John lived his whole life fully given to the fulfillment of God's call upon his life. 
his whole life. I mean, everything about him. And he serves as a premier model of one who is persecuted and martyred for Jesus. He's not the only martyr, but he is one of the greatest for us to see and learn from. And his life proclaims this, that Jesus is worthy of our life too. That's what he tells us. That's what I want you to walk away with today. Friends, Jesus is worthy of a Christ follower's life fully given to spread his fame by faithfulness. If you learn anything from John the Baptist, you should learn this. Jesus is worthy of your whole life, fully given to spread his fame by faithfulness. You know, when Herod heard about the fame of Jesus, he immediately thought of John the Baptist, didn't he? Friends, I can't tell you what a high compliment that is. For people in the world to hear of the things of God and to think of an individual that most reminds them of that. That's called faithful witness. And how powerful it is. It makes one ask, how is it that people hear about the fame of Jesus? I mean, so often today we think, well, if people are going to hear about the fame of Jesus, I got to be an IGer with a lot of followers. I got to be an influencer. I got to have a blog that argues every minutia of everything that's coming out today. And I need to be one of the first that says it. If, if people are going to hear about Jesus, I got to have a platform that just gets bigger and bigger and higher and higher and a whole lot of people standing around it. But I'm telling you, that's not what Matthew is telling us. You may or may not have one or some measure of any of these things, or you may have none of them. But the most important way, biblically, for a person to find out about the fame of Jesus is an individual Christ follower who lives their life fully given for his glory and the fame of his name. And that's what we're going to do. Herod knew about Jesus because John's life was fully given to spread his fame. We're going to talk about spreading the fame of Jesus over the next, fully, uh, uh, next couple of weeks. But today, we want to look at a life given fully to Jesus. You see, a life that's given fully to spread Jesus' fame, I believe we can identify by faithfulness in three qualities that we see in the life of John the Baptist. Three qualities of faithfulness that we see that I want you to understand today. Quality number one is this. John the Baptist was faithful to source his identity, his whole identity in Christ. John's life was lived in radical identification to Jesus. His life was given to Jesus by sourcing his whole identity in the promise of Messiah. Anyone you read, even the people who didn't like him, will always testify to the same things just as Herod did. That man lived for one reason, Jesus Christ. And so it causes us to ask, how is it that John fully sourced his identity in Christ? You know, so often today when we begin this conversation about identity, we really devolve it down into an emotional or psychological experience. 
That, that's where we want to go. We want to go to the inner life and, and it really has very little to do with things other than that. But friends, when identity includes how we and others view us, that's for sure. But it's far more than only an external or, or an internal experience. It's far more external than we ever really admit. We have very few insights into John's psyche. We, we don't really know how he, how he thought or felt, we just see what he did. But what we learn from what he did is how he made decisions, how he lived his life, and all of those things. We learn it from the output of his life. And though we have few insights, we have great insight to the strength of his mental health. Why? Because he lived undivided in radical obedience to God's call and faithful to God's command. That's why James says that we should not be double-minded people because double-minded people will not only be able to serve and obey God, but neither will they be able to hold true to even their own convictions. They'll be partisan to the things that they feel are important at the moment and other things at other times. That's not how John the Baptist was. He was undivided. We see strong mental health here. He was not concerned with the life of relevance, with the life of tolerance. I don't think he gave a whole lot of consideration to accommodation nor alignment with the world so that he could build a friend so maybe one day, somehow, somewhere, sometime down the road, he could talk about Jesus. He came out of the chute talking about Jesus and that's all he talked about. And as Herod learned, you're not going to shut him up. You're not going to shut him up. He demonstrates with every decision he was aligned with God's commands and God's call on his life, not even his own preference. John sought first Jesus' kingdom and lived a bold testimony to the world in both the way he lived and what he said. And this is fully aligned with what Matthew records Jesus' own teaching in chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He was a man singularly focused on the kingdom of God in his heart and with his whole life. You see, he consumed his whole life with serving God. Now, let me just argue this moment uh, for a moment. This is acceptable still to us today, but, but far too often it's a rare exception for Christians. I mean, many still admire it, but mostly from a distance. Too few Christians today, and that's a horrible generalization, but I don't have the exact statistic. But I can give you statistics that bear this out on the church. Too few today want anything to do with consuming their whole life with Jesus. They choose a portion, but not the whole one. You see, Christianity is never a label that we adopt to wear. Christianity, only defined by the scriptures, is a new identity we receive. You are new in him, a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, Paul says. 
And our new identity is aligned with him because of his redemption. That means every decision first considers God's command, his explicit statement in his word, God's counsel, the whole of God's word taken as we put it together in what we call theological frameworks and understanding that counsel of God and also the call of God that's given born witness by the spirit within us as we walk with him. Parents, I'll challenge you in this way. Every conversation with your children from the earliest of days should be focused on training in how to give your life fully to Jesus. Every one of them. Jesus is the one who sources our identity as we conform every aspect of our life to him by his word. Paul teaches that this is the way a Christian lives because of who we understand to be the source of our life, Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 says this, and he died for all, speaking of Jesus, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's identity right there, friends. It's a shift of allegiance by the affections and by the intellect that bears itself out in the attitudes and the actions of life. You see, what consumes you in your inner and your outer life determines where it is that you source your identity from for your life. The way we form an identity is rooted in the heart and the mind, but it's revealed in the actions of life. You see, you are surely more than some sum total of outward actions. There's no single action that defines you because even as Christians, we know we fail, we sin. There's, There's no action ultimately that defines you. But listen, friends, the point I'm making here is this. You are never less than your actions. Your identity is shaped by that which you adhere to both internally and externally, by the affections and the convictions of your life, by the allegiances that you attach your life to, by your participation in and your obedience to, and and even in the traditions and the celebrations that form the, the larger perspective of the rhythms and patterns of life. You see, identity establishes our priority by our convictions. It clarifies and it informs our decisions and it guides all of our life and this is why I would argue why church participation and and even taking children to church is so critical because they they learn an identity that is formed by those regular patterns it doesn't make them a Christian but it does reinforce the reality of what they're learning about Christ that's why you need to be in church too one reason Every part of John's life was defined and directed, fully given by faithfulness to Jesus, fulfilling his call, obeying his word, and serving his mission. And friends, if you are to remain faithful to Jesus Christ, your identity must be sourced completely in him. Let me tell you, you'll go a long time when everything's okay, and you'll be okay with the facade you create. But when hardship, when difficulty when crisis and when calamity strike, you'll not just question yourself, you'll question God. Why? Because it will be exposed that you've been drawing your source of life from something other than him. It won't be easy when he is your source, but it will be faithful and true. John's life testifies this, friends. Jesus is worthy of your life 
fully given to him. Why don't you ask yourself this, this morning. How much of my identity is consumed by Jesus or by another influence? Look at the actions of your life. Look at the daily, weekly, monthly, annual rhythms and patterns by which you engage your life and ask yourself. Listen to me. You say, but, but pastor, I'm not perfect. So if, if I'm not perfect, doesn't that mean that my outward actions actually prove something other than? No, because here's how a Christian responds to that. In the evidence of our imperfection, which is given multiple times daily, even more than other people see by our own heart and attitudes and things of that nature, the Spirit of God convicts us. And what shows that we are sourcing our identity in Christ is not the perfect performance that we bear, but the regular returning to the cross and to the gospel and believing and trusting in him for the forgiveness and the cleansing that he gives to us. And instead of trying to make something up to make you look a certain way in front of certain people, you just run back to Jesus and you remind him that you remember that his blood shed for you is sufficient for you. The second quality is faithful to stand on God's truth. John the Baptist was characterized by his life of faithfulness. His evidence was consistency of and faithfulness in his message of repentance. He called people to repent of their sin. And you'll see in the scriptures even that some argue after that John the Baptist had an incomplete gospel. He did. Not because of himself, but because of historically where he stood. John preached a message of repentance. Jesus preaches a message of righteousness. Repentance is necessary, but it's not the final Part. What Jesus did is build on the ministry and message of John the Baptist and complete it. Repent for the kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe. Repent and receive your forgiveness and the righteousness of Christ that is put on you because of him. So Jesus confirms John's ministry. He does not negate it. He just says what John did was fulfilled in me. But John was faithful to his ministry. He identified sin according to what God's word said sin was. That's becoming rare in our day, isn't it? It's already rare. It's not becoming that. John was faithful in both his radical and his unrelenting, unchanging uh, life, regardless of the audience he stood in front of. And that's, Matthew's already demonstrated that. Even in front of the highest of officials, he didn't flinch. His message was the same. When he was persecuted to be thrown in prison, he didn't soften his voice. He remained faithful and true to stand on God's word. John was hated by people who, specifically Herod and Herodias, who were offended and irritated because of faithful, uh, his faithfulness to God's truth. And as we saw last week, uh, in, in, the, in the teaching last week, you'll either believe Jesus in what he's revealed to us in his word, or you'll be offended at him. There's no in-between. And then ultimately, John was killed because he took a stand for Jesus. And let me say this to you, Christian. There shouldn't be any flinch in us. We shouldn't be ashamed. We shouldn't be embarrassed. Nor should we be silent about John the Baptist's life. We should hold him in the highest regard. Next to Jesus? No, nobody's saying that. He wasn't perfect. 
But he points us to Jesus. And we shouldn't be embarrassed about those who give their life fully to the fame of Jesus Christ. Where does that come from? Why are we embarrassed about Christians who get openly persecuted and who get hounded by the world? We ought to anticipate this. John the Baptist is not someone for us to be ashamed of. He's someone for us to to champion as, as a faithful brother. One who lived his life in such a way that we could emulate it and do great work for the kingdom of God. You see, Christ followers need not be offensive in our tone, in our demeanor, nor our spirit for others to take offense. People who take offense at Jesus will inevitably take offense at his followers too. Jesus says, they're going to hate you because they hated me. We don't need to give them more ammo. But what Christ followers must do is to understand and be prepared for this. People will take offense when you dare to stand on the truth of God's word. Because the wisdom of God is folly. It's foolishness to the world, friends. They'll deny God's word and they will seek to discredit you. And they'll resort to any means to do it. And when they are offended and when they are threatened, there will be no limit of the depth of darkness and deception uh, to which the collective human wisdom will dive to discredit the truth of God's word. They'll look straight into the camera and they will lie to you knowing that you know it's a lie and they know it's a lie and they will champion it and they will celebrate it and they will say it over and over and over again until you believe it so you're deceived by it knowing all the time it's a lie. They don't care. But it's God's truth that remains the two-edged sword. It's God's truth that divides both joint and marrow. It's God's truth that cuts through confusion and deception. It's God's truth that sheds light on the mind and lightness to the heart. You see, truth from God is still living water and bread of life that satisfies all who hunger and thirst. There was a debate that arose a number of years ago over a cliche that became very popular, WWJD. It was innocent in its origination, there's no question. It was to remind us what would Jesus do and to consider that. And, and you know, with any of these things that are imperfect, obviously some negatives arose from its emphasis. Namely, the negative was an emphasis on situational ethics that we ought to wait till the situation arises until we know what to do and just think about what, you know, Jesus did. And, and, and where does that conversation, that conversation is always one directional, right? Like, oh, he would love And you're right. But to quote a famous movie, is I don't think that word means what you think that word means. I think a better question for us to ask is not what would Jesus do, but what has God said? Let me tell you why. Because Jesus himself said this. He only said and he only did what the Father told him to say and what the Father told him to do. And that's recorded in his word. Friends, God's word is sufficient for your life today. For every decision, every circumstance, every challenge, every difficulty, you will never find anything in your life where God's word isn't sufficient. And when you stand on God's word, you will be confident, you can be confident, it will accomplish God's purpose in your life. Now, God's purpose may not be aligned with your wishes, But God's word will always bring about his transformation into Christ's likeness for you. God will prove faithful to his word. 
And you will know his faithfulness when you are living to stand on his word. And so I ask you, is there any area of your life, a relationship, a decision or otherwise, where you're wavering, where you know that you're not standing on the word of God and the truth of what it says? You want the faithfulness of God? You've got to stand on the rock. Because it is the rock that will not be moved. Jesus is worthy of your life, fully given to faithfully stand on the truth of his word at all times and all situations for his glory. The third quality is this, faithful to persevere to the end. John the Baptist is an ultimate model for faithfulness and perseverance for Christians. He's not the only one, but he is an ultimate model for us. He refused the pressure of daily demands and opposition. He rejected the pressure to recant by prison and even the threat and the ultimate losing of his life. He knew his time and his life were limited, but he knew he could maximize his influence if he remained faithful. And his ministry would conclude when the Messiah was identified, and that had taken place. John the Baptist was faithful to the very end, and when the end came, he was faithful to fully submit his life to the will of God for how it would end. Friend, when a Christian endures to the end, Jesus promises we will gain our life in him. And as I mentioned earlier in the message, how many promises has God not been faithful to? Not one. Goose eggs. Zilcho. Zero. Nada. You see, most of us will not have to persevere to death for our faith in Jesus. But we must still be ready to persevere against the daily pressures we face. Just because, you're, just because the pressures you faced aren't identical to the ones John the Baptist or someone else faced, don't make them inconsequential. And don't allow anybody to tell you different. Whether it's mocking and ridicule, whether it's uh, the, the, the loss, lessening, or even the severing of friendships, the loss of relationships, the loss of a job, the loss of career opportunity, and the many myriad of things that come about because we strive to trust and remain faithful to Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus sees our faithfulness and he honors us by his blessing. Why? Because we stand upon his word. And there is no stronger promise for a Christ follower than what we have from Jesus about what appears to us as the end of life, but to him is the end of nothing. God doesn't flinch at death. Oh, he mourns. He mourns the death of his children, but he doesn't flinch. It doesn't intimidate him at all. He's not worried about it. And with such a strong, hopeful promise in the face of a terminal threat, to see one who's gone before us gives us strength to persevere. Persevering to the end, Christian, will be determined by one thing in your life. One thing. Daily faithfulness every day. Stop worrying about how you'll react in the end and focus on what God has revealed to you for today. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. The scriptures teach us. God, Grant to me the grace to persevere in faithfulness today in obedience and in faithful testimony that the name of Jesus might be more famous because of this moment in my life. Jesus proves he is worthy of your life fully given to him 
in daily faithfulness. And he will prove faithful as you persevere to the end. Why did John the Baptist live so radically to spread the fame of Jesus? Because he was worth it. He was worth it. And you will find that he is worthy as well. As you live by faith and walk with him. Let's pray. Father, grant to us today the great grace to trust you. Lord, to read a a passage such as this about a dear brother, mentor, even a hero of our faith, to see how his life honored you in every way and how the world would say, but in the end he lost. But the gospel says in the end he gained. When we lose our life for Christ's sake, we gain his life. Let us not forget these words in our prayers, in our decisions, in our mind and thinking, in our heart, in the affections of our life, in our decisions, in the way we live, in the way we love, and the way we go about life in every way. Christian, I hope today that you will ask the Spirit to search you and to see if there is any way in which you are making concessions in your faith. Not a life being fully given, but ask the Spirit to convict you that you might repent of those things and be fully given to living for the fame of Jesus in His name. Friends, if you are here today and you are not a Christian, you've never come to a point in your life where you've repented of your sin and you received the forgiveness and the cleansing and the righteousness of God that comes through Him, I want to extend that invitation to you today. God waits to save. God waits to heal. God waits to receive you if you'll believe in Him. And I'm telling you, you will find He is faithful to His Word. He will save.